The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Acts 4, 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them all in jail, or put them in jail. This is Peter and John until the next day, because it was evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men who came to be were about 5,000. And uh, verse 13, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And so in verse 17, in order that uh, it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn these men not to speak no more in this man's name. And when they had summoned them, that's Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we've heard. Father, give us boldness like that. Give us boldness. Lord, as we look at this passage, I pray you would make us more than hearers of the word, but you would make us doers in Jesus' name. Amen. Trouble's coming. That's the title of Acts chapter 4, Trouble's Coming. Persecution's coming. The church is born. Not everybody's excited. There's a lame man who couldn't walk who's now dancing and leaping and praising God in the temple, and not everybody's fired up about it. The religious leaders are not. It is putting in jeopardy their livelihood. It's putting in jeopardy their following, and so they're not excited. Trouble's coming. Sometimes when you trust Christ as Savior, sometimes because of the gospel, trouble comes. Uh, you guys recognize this dear friend of mine. His Providence may even be here this hour. His Providence here. Providence is his daughter. She's a uh, resident at Scott and White. Uh, this is my dear friend, and uh, most of you have met Celestin Musakura. Celestin was a young man in a Rwandan village who came to faith in Jesus Christ. When uh, he came to faith in Jesus Christ, trouble came. He was kicked out of the village. He literally lived, if you heard his testimony, off of garbage for a couple of weeks. That's all he could find. And then he was embraced by the Christian community, and he began to grow. Trouble came because of the gospel. This is our friend Sukwat Bhatia. Many of you are here when Sukwat has spoken in the past. Sukwat grew up in a wealthy Sikh home in India. Sikh is a religion like Hinduism, Islam, etc. Sikh is a, a religion in India. He was a, a Sikh. His family was wealthy. Uh, Sukwat found a Bible, began to read it, and he came to faith in Jesus. He went home excited to tell his family what had happened. When his father heard the story that his son had deserted Sikhism and was now a follower of Jesus, he met him at the door at the door with a gun and said, you're no longer my son, you must leave, you may never come home. Because of the gospel, Sukwat, our dear friend, found trouble and trouble came. One of my heroes of the faith is this gentleman, Ivan Prokopchik. Ivan is the older man in the picture. Ivan Prokopchik, I've shared his story many times before. His son, Anatoly, is the uh, third from this side. Uh, and so Anatoly's here. He's the founder of Kiev Theological Seminary, and he really stands on the shoulders of his father, Ivan. 
When Ivan, uh, in between his first and second year at Kiev Theological Institute, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. The Communist Youth Party found out about it. This is way back in the 1940s. They found out about it, and uh, when they found, or 50s, I forget the exact years, uh, but when he came to faith in Christ, Communist Party found out about it. They went to him. They threatened him. He refused to deny the name of Jesus. They told him he would no longer go to Kiev Institute, which was uh, basically the MIT of the Ukraine at that time, still is, and uh, he refused to recant. He spent the next six years of his life in a Soviet gulag. When you sit with him, it's like sitting with a saint from the scriptures. I've sat with Ivan many times. He's one of my heroes of the faith. Trouble came because of the gospel. Came. Trouble's coming. It's coming in our nation. You guys are keeping up with the news and you see what's around. It, it's coming to our world. Because scriptures say that uh, Jesus said if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Trouble's coming because of the gospel. It began in Acts chapter 4. That's where it all began. It began because uh, Peter and John were headed to the temple to pray, and they saw, as Dave Tate uh, did so well last week, they, they saw a man who had been lame, and they said, uh, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the guy goes dancing in the temple, but not everybody's excited. Not everybody's happy. Not everybody's rejoicing. In fact, when we go to Acts chapter 4, verse 1, specifically spells out for us the priests. The priests would have been the Levites who were doing their annual duty to serve in the temple. And the captain of the temple guard, that would be like the police chief. And the Sadducees, who were an interesting group of folks, they were some of the Jewish leaders of that day and age. The Sadducees and Pharisees were the two sects or two groups that led the nation of Israel. The Sadducees had more power. They were the wealthiest. The Sadducees came into power during the Maccabean time. The Maccabean time is the intertestamental time. There's a 400-year period between the Old Testament and New Testament of silence. During that time, certain groups rose up. One of those groups were the Sadducees, the Pharisees also, but the Sadducees. The Sadducees rose up. They were the nobility. They were the wealthy. They also became the collaborators and the compromisers. The Sadducees became those who collaborated with the Romans and who compromised politically and compromised theologically. They were also theological misfits. They really did not believe in eternal things. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles, basically. And they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the bodily resurrection, the resurrection we will have one day in the future when our bodies will be taken to be with the Savior. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because they didn't believe in any resurrection at all. And the Sadducees, we're going to see in the book of Acts, are the primary persecutors of the church. It's not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. And that's because most of Acts revolves around the temple, and they were the ones who were the keepers of the temple. They were the political elite. In fact, the priesthood itself had been wrestled away from the true priests and had become almost an inheritance, if you will. What we find is that the Sadducees had built it into almost a nobility, almost a rank and file, uh, where, where they become a generational uh, baton being passed from one generation to the next. And so even the, the high priest became Sadducees who ruled over the temple. And so when you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 1, what you see is that there is opposition. The opposition comes from the religious. May I state to you that the greatest adversary of Christianity is religion. So, Gary, what are you drinking up there? It's just water. That's what Dave Tate had last week. That's what I have this week. The greatest adversary of true Christianity is religion. What do you mean by that? Well, religion is man reaching up to God 
True Christianity is God reaching down to man. Religion is man working as a means to gain God's favor. It's man always trying to earn God's favor, but the truth of the scriptures is that God paid the sacrifice for our sins. It's salvation by grace, not by anything you can earn. You see, in religion, it's man keeping rules and regulations and traditions, whereas in true Christianity, it's God releasing us from bondage and giving us true freedom. When some of you see this chart, you kind of get a little nervous and maybe a little sad because you were religious for a lot of years. You had religion, but you didn't have Jesus. Many of you grew up in churches where the gospel was veiled. You had religion, but you didn't have Jesus. Many of you grew up in situations where you learned about Jesus, but didn't know how to have a relationship with Jesus. Nobody talked to you about the forgiveness of sin, and so you grew up religious, but not righteous. You grew up in church, but you came to faith maybe in your late teens or 20s or 30s or 40s, so you had religion, but you didn't have Jesus. How many of you does that apply to? You grew up in church, came to Christ later in life. Raise your hands high. Take a look around this room. Amazing, isn't it? Like I said, the greatest adversary to true Christianity is religion. And so we preach Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen again, in salvation and no other name. If that sounds familiar, because it comes right out of Acts chapter 2. Well, the opposition is pretty clear. We see who it is. We live in a world filled with opposition. We live in a world where those who stand against the gospel. Um, There are many things. I I watched a video before I came in here of a lady in Germany who stood up for the truth of the gospel. An Islamic imam had been invited to an ecumenical service in one of the churches that Martin Luther had preached in. He began to issue the Islamic call to prayer, Allah Akbar, and as he did that, she stood up and protested. She was dragged out of the church where the imam was allowed to pray in the church. Isn't that amazing? A friend of mine is a, a missionary in Europe as well. He said uh, a couple of years ago we were beginning a, uh, a evangelistic crusade and he was in charge of uh, training the folks who would uh, be working with those who came forward uh, in this crusade. And he said uh, we had prepared well, we had invited a guest evangelist, uh, my folks were trained, we were going to have Bible studies in homes with the new converts afterwards, and uh, we had a team of folks uh, who were in place for this crusade. Then we all received, the leadership received this letter. Dear brothers in Christ, due to the recent church elections and the resulting uh, new church board of elders, we regret to inform you that all the evangelistic activities for next year in our church have been canceled. What? The new board desires to head the church in a different direction. (laughs) Do you hear that? Uh, We're going to keep meeting but we're not going to do evangelism. We're not going to tell people about Jesus. So why meet? Why meet? If that happens here, don't show up, close the doors, don't build buildings, tear these down. We're not going to have evangelistic enterprises this year. That's the world we live in. The opposition can be there. Well, you contrast that with the boldness of Peter. It should say Peter and John because they were both bold in what they did. My mistake. 
In chapter 4, verse 5, it says it came about. That, by the way, look at what happens. It's so late, verse 3, that they have to spend the night in jail. It's too late to have a trial. And by the way, the church is growing. At the end of verse 4, now there are 5,000 people. So everybody's getting a little nervous. The Sadducees see their prestige, their power, and their pocketbook being affected. There are now 5,000 followers of Jesus. The church has exploded. They want to stop the growth. And so it came about on the next day that they all gathered together. Look at verse 7. And when they had placed them in the center, so they put Peter and John in the center, and they formed the semicircle around them and say, by what power or what name have you done this? Hey, you came here. You caused this disruption. We've got this guy in the temple. Your people are showing up all the time. Now this guy's walking around. Whose name and whose authority did you do this? And they had a right to question that because in Deuteronomy 13, it says if somebody performs a miracle or does things in the name other than the name of God and didn't point them to God, then it was wrong. So they had the right to ask that question. So Peter said, you're putting me on trial. I'm going to put you on trial. I just love what Peter does here. This this backwoods fisherman from the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee looks at these educated theologians and he says, I'll tell you whose authority I come on. And look at what Peter says. He says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, he said, let's get it straight. The reason we're here is because this guy that couldn't walk, you know what he's doing right now? Look, look at the end of verse 9. He stands here before you in good health. He couldn't even walk. Now he's standing right here. Let's not forget why we're, on, why we're here today. We're here today because a guy who couldn't walk can walk now. And you want to know whose power we come on? Look at verse 9. Let it be known to you and to all of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, And by the way, you don't believe in the resurrection? Whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here. You want to know where the power comes from? You want to know whose authority it comes from? It comes from a guy who's resurrected. You don't believe in the resurrection? I'm going to tell you, if it wasn't for the resurrection, we would not be here. He would not be here. And the resurrection is true. Peter stands before. They just thrown him in jail the night before. They could do anything they wanted to him. And then he quotes Psalm 118. If you're writing your Bibles, write in the margin Psalm 118. Verse 11 is a quote from that psalm. It says, uh, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. If you go back to Psalm 118 and see in its context, Peter's saying, Psalm 118 is not talking about these pagan nations coming against Israel. Psalm 118 is talking about you, the Jewish leaders, rejecting Jesus. Having a conversation with uh, Danny. Danny and I, our executive pastor, we're talking. We're talking about, isn't it amazing that Luke writes these words in Acts? The words of Peter. And isn't it amazing if you go to Luke chapter 20? The same religious leaders are asking the question of Jesus. By whose authority do you come from? And then he gives them a parable. And in Luke chapter 20, it's quite interesting. Now, the author of Acts is whom? Not a trick question. Who's the author of Acts? Luke is. Who's the author of Luke? Yeah, Luke is. You guys really get gold stars today. 
So they asked Jesus, whose authority do you come by? And he says, well, we sent different people in the vineyard. You killed them all, and then you killed, uh, eventually you killed the, 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 the workers that came, and, and even the son, the beloved son came, and you're going to kill him too. And then, you know what he quotes at the end of that? Psalm 118. And, and Jesus says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And Jesus says, you know what? I come in the authority of the Father who sent me, and you're going to reject me. I'm the chief cornerstone. And then Peter stands before the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin that's gathered there, and he says, by the way, I come in the authority of the one whom you rejected who will become the chief cornerstone. A little later, Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2 about the same Savior. He said, he was built, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as a chief cornerstone. And then Peter would write, he says, I see a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. He used to sing that song. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Four times in the New Testament we find Psalm 118 quoted. It tells over and over again, the one you reject, Jesus Christ, is the cornerstone. He's the one the church is built upon. He's the foundation. You wonder whose authority we come from? We come from the authority of the risen Jesus who magnifies the Father. So we meet the criteria of Deuteronomy 18. We glorify God in the process. And the result of that is, I mean, Peter's boldness comes about, and the result of that is these people are confused. How can these uneducated, look at the next verse, verse 14. How can these, I'm sorry, verse 13, how can these uneducated, interesting word, the Greek word is idiotes, how can these idiots, how can these untrained men speak with such confidence? Hey, we've gone to the seminaries. We've got the PhDs in rabbinical theology. We know the Old Testament. We lead the truth. We speak the truth. How in the world can these backwoods seed, hayseed guys, fishermen from the Sea of Galilee, put all this together? How can they do it? What's their explanation? One of my favorite verses in Acts. They looked at them and their confidence, these untrained, uneducated idiotes, and they marveled. I asked Mark to put that song in there here in their presence. You know why? Because it talks about this. Kings in their kingdoms will stand amazed here in his presence. They recognize they had been with Jesus. That's all I could say. They look at these untrained idiotes and said, how can they speak with confidence? And all they could say, they marveled and began to recognize that they'd been with Jesus. You've been with Jesus? If you want to look like Jesus... You have to be with Jesus. That's simple. You hear me talk about quiet times being in the Word. You want to look like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. Talk about reading through the Bible in a year. If you want to look like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. We talk about being in community with other believers so that you can be sharp. And if you want to be like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. We talk about serving other people. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. 
these idiotes who were untrained. All we could say is they'd been with Jesus. Well, that was Jesus' plan from the beginning. You see, when he called the disciples in Mark chapter 3, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. They watched the way Jesus treated children. They watched the way Jesus treated women. They watched the way Jesus treated men. They listened to his words. They looked at his actions. And when it came time for them to go and do the same, all the Jewish leaders could say is, they're untrained idiotes, but they've been with Jesus. I just love that. That's a woman who's been with Jesus. That's a man who's been with Jesus. I don't know where they got their education. I don't know how they grew spiritually. But I can tell you this. That young man, he's been with Jesus. That junior high kid, he's been with Jesus. That grandma, she's been in the presence of Jesus. And the result is that you're different. Well, the courage of Peter and John is quite clear. They said, uh, hey, you can't say this anymore. You can't talk about that. They call them in, and Peter and John boldly stand before them and said, you you tell us what's right. We're going to tell you God tells us what's right. We can't stop speaking that which we've seen or heard. That's found in verses 17 through 19. Whether it's right, verse 19, you decide. We can't stop speaking what we've seen and heard, boldly stating that Jesus Christ is the one that they're going to follow. I just love the boldness of those guys at that point in time. They boldly state who the Savior is. They boldly state we're going to follow him. They boldly state we're going to do that. You look at their courage, they said, we cannot stop talking about him. It's like when I take that first bite of bluebell, I just can't stop. (laughs) I can't stop that which I've tasted, that which I've seen. We've tasted Jesus. We can't stop talking. So what happens in the early church? Look at what happens in verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their companions, and they reported all the chief priests and elders said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. They began to praise God and to thank God. And and then look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, Peter and John set the example, and they followed Hey, they told us to be quiet, but we cannot be quiet. They told us to stop, but we can't stop. They they told us not to proclaim who he is. We can't stop proclaiming who he is. They told us not to talk. We can't stop talking because Jesus is the one we have tasted and we have seen. Some of you need to become bold. Boldness for us is going to look a whole lot differently, depending where you are in life and your spiritual life. For some of you, boldness may be this Thanksgiving, praying before a meal. Nobody in your family has ever boldly done that, and your whole family is going to gather together, and you're scared to death to be called Mr. Goody Two-Shoes or Miss Righteous One or a religious fanatic. And maybe the boldest thing you can do that's never been done in your family is, hey, we're going to offer grace to God before a meal. For some of you, that'd be a huge stand. For some of you, boldness is starting a Bible study in your neighborhood. You've got neighbors who either want to grow spiritually or who don't know Jesus, and it would be a bold step for you to do that. For some of you, it'd be really bold to do that same thing at work. 
that to show up a little early, invite guys or gals to join you. For some of you, boldness would be walking away from dirty jokes that everybody tells at work. For some of you, it's not going to the bar with the guys after work. For some of you, you're going to deer lease next week, and it's going to be not getting drunk for the first time at the deer lease. Or when they pull out porn, you're going to walk away because you're a man who walks after God now. You're not going to participate in that garbage. For some of you, boldness will be praying with your kids at bedtime because you've never done it before. And it's going to be hard to do. For some of you, it's going to be taking your wife's hand at night, saying, babe, we've got to start praying together. And it's going to be the most courageous thing you do because you're fearful to do it. For some of you, boldness is going to be finding a smaller community of believers because you're shy, you're fearful, you've got a thousand excuses, and you don't want to do it. You fill in the blank. Boldness for me is whatever. Safety is not the absence of danger, it's the presence of God. See, these guys were surrounded by danger. Just spent the night in jail. They said, stop speaking. But they didn't stop. They were willing to risk it all for the gospel. Trouble was coming, and trouble came. Ned Thorns was a major in the Army Air Force when he was captured by the Vietnamese. He ended up in the Hanoi Hilton. Spent several years there. He said that every night we would have a, uh, they would tap, as you know, Morse code on the walls and communicate. He said all that changed on November 20th, 1970. There was a uh, rescue mission that failed, but the Vietnamese realized their small prisons on the outside uh, were in danger to be captured by Americans, so they moved everybody to the Hanoi Hilton. They put us in the same cell, 45 of us. For years, we've been tapping codes to one another. But we'd never seen one another's face. That night, nobody slept. So that's what you look like. So that's who you are. And they embraced one another, and they cared for one another, and they shared their stories of torture together. I remember five years ago when they took you out, how we prayed that you would come back. They decided since they were together, they would hold a worship service together that first Sunday. So they gathered together in the cell. And they'd not been allowed together more, even though there were 45 in a, a large cell, they could only be in clusters of three, according to the Viet Cong. But this day they decided they would worship together. They began the service by reciting the Lord's Prayer, and when the Viet Cong heard them reciting the Lord's Prayer... They sent uh, soldiers in to cease and desist, and they did. That whole week, though, they were filled with guilt. Guilt that they should have stood up to their captors, guilt that they should have gone on with the worship service, and guilt that they should have worshipped God together no matter the cost. Ned Thorns, who I'm talking about, was a senior ranking officer of the SRO. And he said, this Sunday we're going to have a worship service no matter what happens. He knew that man as the highest ranking officer. He would be the first taken and tortured. So they began with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. Forty-five men worshiping together in prayer. The Viet Cong came in, told them to cease and desist, and they didn't. 
They took him out of the cell and they could hear screams. He began to be beaten. And the worship continued. And the second highest ranking officer was taken out. And then the third. And then the fourth. And then an amazing thing happened. The highest ranking Viet Cong officer in the middle of these guys now singing brought the four guys who had been tortured back into the cell and let them worship together. Can you imagine what a jubilant time that was? The boldness of those men allowed them to worship the Savior together. Where do you need to exercise boldness? Persecution and trouble came. May come for us, I don't know. But I can tell you this, safety is not the absence of boldness, not the absence of danger. It's the presence of God. Father, thank you. Thank you for bold men like Peter and John, first century church, Ned Thornus, other men and women who stood for the faith, Athanasius, Polycarp, the first centuries, who said, and I will stand against the world if the world stands against Christ. I'm not sure how God has spoken to you today. Maybe it's that you've been trusting in religion rather than Jesus. There's no name under heaven or earth other than the name of Jesus by which a man can be saved. Give up your religion and trust Jesus. Or maybe you know the Savior, but you have been cowardly some way, somehow. Do you confess that? And ask him to make you a bold spokesman of the truth to his glory. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.